The image of these 40 days is in fact the, the more focused image of temptation. You all know the popular image of temptation, which has a ring of truth about it. It's, it's the person that's being pulled in two different directions at once. It is the voice of the angelic on the one side calling us to obedience to Jesus, calling us to life, life more abundantly, calling us to do what's right even when it's harder than doing what's wrong. And then on the other side is the voice of the which is calling us in different directions. Not toward life, but toward death. Not toward obedience, but toward self-gratification. There are these forces that are pulling us one way or the other, and so this popular image of temptation is in fact not a bad image of temptation. The idea of temptation in the Bible is a multifaceted one, but the first idea of what temptation is. It shows us what we're made of. It shows us the kind of metal, M-E-T-T, however that's spelled, we are made of. And an example, sometimes I do outside weddings in August. And uh, you can imagine that someone who is hot-natured like me, an outside wedding in August, it is just not pretty. I don't even look at the wedding albums of people that I do outdoor weddings in August because I I sweat profusely, I get dehydrated, and these large veins pop out on the top of my head. It's just disgusting. And so after I do the outdoor weddings in, in August, then I go back and, and I have to have my suit cleaned. So I took my suit one August to the uh, dry cleaners. And there was a $100 bill in one of my coat pockets. And uh, when I went back four days later to pick it up, they had included a tiny little Ziploc bag, and in that Ziploc bag were the contents that they had found in my coat, which included a $100 bill and a broken button. Needless to say, it it showed me what they were made of. It showed me that this was a trustworthy place, and any time I ever needed dry cleaning done again, this is exactly the place that I went because they could have been dishonest and I wouldn't have known any different. It shows us what we're made of. This, this temptation showed me what the people I was dealing with were, were made of. Temptation is also the provocation to do the wrong thing. Something that we know is not right. Temptation provokes us to do it and... A kind of a, a flip side of that is that sometimes there's something that's not wrong, but it's wrong if it's not the right time. And so it can be an enticement to do something that's not bad, something that may be good even, but not at the time that it should be done. The Old Testament and the New Testament have their kind of paradigmatic moments of temptation. In the Old Testament, uh, we, find, we find the story from Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now notice 
The serpent is not quoting God directly here. The serpent is planting this seed of doubt, going beyond what God has said. God has simply said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And The, the serpent is, is taking this, and then when the woman responds, the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. So the serpent starts introducing this doubt, and then the woman, when she speaks, also introduces something that God has not introduced. God didn't say anything about touching the fruit. He only said, don't eat of the fruit. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was 57.6 miles away. Oh, no, that's not what it says. Who was three counties over, no. Who was on the other side of the garden where he didn't know what was going on, no. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. There are two figures in church history who talk about kind of the the nature of temptation. The first of these is St. Augustine. (laughs) You get the joke. This is Florida. (laughs) I typed in St. Augustine to get a picture of him, and and all of these these places came up, and I'm like, what's going on? Then I figured out that this was the guy I was after. St. Augustine, and then Gregory the Great. So we're, we're talking 1,500 years ago, 1,400 years ago roughly. They're thinking about this idea of temptation. And here's what they say, that there's kind of three pieces to temptation. First, there is the suggestion. The suggestion, there's nothing wrong with the suggestion. It just comes. Sometimes the serpent whispers it. And then there's this delight. You sort of think about, oh, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And then in the end, there is consent, which is the surrender to temptation. And the church fathers talked about three different sources of temptation. The world is a source of temptation. You can go out and get yourself in trouble any day of the week, any day of the year. You can go out and make all sorts of bad decisions because the world will give you plenty of opportunities to do that. So the world is a source of temptation. The flesh is a source of temptation. We have to be careful when we talk about the flesh because Christianity does not see our bodies as bad. In fact, embodiment is a part of what it means to be human. Jesus becomes incarnate. Jesus becomes embodied. There is nothing that is inherently unholy about occupying a body and having flesh and bones. So when the New Testament talks about the flesh, the New Testament is not talking about the fact that we are embodied people. 
The New Testament is talking about that part of us that lives in this world that has turned its back on God and, and there are desires within us that are counter to the desires of God. And so those are understood to be the flesh, not simply the fact that we're made of skin and bones. And then the third traditional source of temptation is the devil. And our text gets right to the point. It's the devil who takes Jesus out for 40 days to be tempted. To be tempted. Now, if you were reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time, you would have learned quite a few things by chapter 4 about Jesus. First, you would have learned that God called Zechariah and Elizabeth and gave us John the Baptist to point the way. This is the Savior. This character of Jesus is special enough that he's given his own announcer. This character of Jesus is born in a way that is not a typical birth. Mary is with child. By the Holy Spirit, she conceives Jesus. Jesus' birth is absolutely miraculous. And after we find out about John the Baptist being born and, and Jesus being born miraculously, then we find that the Spirit leads Jesus out. Or the, then we find that the Spirit leads Jesus to the Jordan River and, and descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. So here we're learning more about Jesus. If you're reading Luke for the first time, you see that the voice from heaven says, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. So we, we get piece after piece after piece of information about the identity of, of Jesus here in the early chapters. And, and after this expression of you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased, Luke changes genre. He wants to say that Jesus is in the lineage of a number of specific people. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as it was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathet, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Jani, son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos. All right, I'm going to fast forward here. But as I'm fast forwarding, it won't take that long until we start to see some names that we recognize. Son of Nathan son of David. There's an announcer coming to talk about Jesus' appearance. Jesus is born miraculously. Jesus has the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove with the voice from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And he is descended from David, Jesse, Obed, Boaz. Fast forward some more, you're welcome. Isaac, Abraham, Terah, and then the list goes on until Enos, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. 
Now, if you want to look at the differences between the two genealogies, it would take us a little while to talk about these, but Matthew's genealogy is more focused on Jewish readers, and so Matthew takes the genealogy back to Abraham so that Jewish readers could say, he's one of us. He is the child of Abraham, who is the descendant of David, who is to rule. He is one of us. But Luke's genealogy is for a broader readership. Luke's genealogy connects Jesus with Adam, with humankind, with all humanity. So there's not a person in the world who can say, he's not one of us. No, no. He is. He is fully God. He is fully human. He is one of us. And Luke goes to great lengths to demonstrate that he is a part fully and completely of humanity. And back to the 40 days, Jill's children's sermon uh, this morning talked about all of the different ways that the number 40 is used in different places in the Bible. But the number 40 um, is a number of completeness, of totality. And so to say that Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days means that he was absolutely, completely, totally, fully tempted in every way. And he had the complete and full opportunity to give in to temptation after his baptism. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted. The first temptation. The devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Listen, here's the temptation. Will Jesus, who has made a spiritual commitment, choose to surrender to his physical impulses? Will Jesus, who has gone into the wilderness for communion with God, choose to surrender to his own bodily hunger? That's a question for us. How far will we go before we surrender to that which we desire or that which brings us pleasure or that which we want as much as we want anything else? The first temptation has Jesus choosing not to surrender a spiritual commitment for a physical the second temptation, the devil led him up and showed him this vision in an instant of all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said, to you I will give their glory and all this authority for it has been given over to me and I'll give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus faces this temptation. Will he embark on a quest for power that will rob him of his identity as the chosen one, the Messiah, the Son of God, 
the one in unity with, with all of humanity. Will Jesus embark on this quest for power that causes him to surrender who he is? There are a lot of things that people go after these days. For some, it is resources. For some, it is popularity. For others, it is a quick and easy way to make life less difficult. Are you willing to surrender something that's going to rob you of who you are? Jesus didn't. The third temptation, the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Is Jesus going to show off to prove his identity to others? And consider for just a minute that Jesus is both fully God and, and fully human. If we consider that what it means to be fully human is to have faith, then Jesus himself has faith in his identity as son of God. Jesus himself has faith in his identity as beloved of God, as the descendant of David, the descendant of Abraham. Jesus himself has faith. So is he going to try to show off? He's going to try to test who he is? Or will he rest securely in his knowledge of who he is? I remember being in a college ministry and uh, in, in the college ministry I was a part of, there were a lot of people who had some really dramatic stories of how, to begin with, they were, they were just totally rotten people to hear them tell it. And, and then suddenly Jesus came into their lives and I thought to myself, well, I don't have that much of a story. My life is pretty boring in comparison. Maybe I need to go out and do a few things so I can come back and confess to everybody in person. Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, God had given me enough security, who I was as a child of the Father, that, that I understood. I'm, I'm grateful for the people who have the dramatic conversion stories because God absolutely works that way. I'm also grateful for the people who have consistently, day after day, week after week, year after year, devoted themselves to loving and to serving God. Jesus could have shown off if he wanted to. He could have cast himself down so that something miraculous would have happened, but Jesus knew who he was and had nothing to prove, especially not to Satan. So we've got these two temptation stories. One in Genesis. Adam and Eve get it wrong. They've got one job to do. And they get it wrong. In the New Testament, we've got Jesus who gets it absolutely 
completely, fully, totally, thoroughly right. And we tie our faith, you and I, we tie our fortunes, we tie our lives to the one who got it right. The book of Hebrews puts it this way, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested like we are. And yet is without sin. We've followed the pattern of Genesis. It's your story, it's my story. We've heard you shall not. We've found it a good idea to do it. And, and, and we've, we've fallen from the path that God would have us lead. We followed that story. But Jesus offers us a counter-narrative. A counter-story where just as thoroughly as our ancestors got it wrong, Jesus gets it right. Just as, just as fully as our forebears gave into temptation, Jesus overcomes temptation. And you and I, somewhere in between. I hope I give in to temptation fewer times this year than four or five years ago. If I'm growing in faith, that will be the case. If I'm looking at Jesus' model, that will be the case. But all of us have sinned, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. As we grow, uh, hopefully the the distance between ourselves and God with, with every passing year will become less and less until we are walking with God day after day. But our faith is not in our goodness. Our faith is in the goodness of our high priest who understands what it means to be a human being, who understands what it's like to be tempted. And in Genesis, humanity got it wrong. But in Jesus, humanity gets it right. And he reaches out to us and he says, I'll bring you with me. He reaches out to us and he says, I no longer call you servants but I call you friends. He reaches out to us and he gives us a prayer that goes even beyond friendship. Our Father. You're part of the family. Because Jesus got it right. And so as we move through Lent, we're only a few days into Lent, I fail at Lent just as often as I succeed. I often feel like, oh my goodness, here I am three days in and I'm already behind. Sometimes I'll make it to 23 days. Once or twice, I feel like I've succeeded at Lent. But it's not about me succeeding or you. It's ultimately about our relationship with the one who got it right. We have nothing to prove. And we have faith that the one who loved the world and entered it 
loves us and has come to make us holy and make us whole, to bring us into his family, and to teach us how to stand up when the voices of temptation come.